Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and I welcome you to our podcast. Whether it's your first time joining us or you've been with us for a while, I thank you for spending a little bit of your time and your week with us as we share Asian American stories that may resonate with you or that may be the first time that you hear a story of somebody who looks, sounds, and uh, shares your experience. Today, I am so excited to share a story of Aladdin. Uh, not the real Aladdin, but one who plays Aladdin on Broadway in New York City. Michael Malayakel joins us uh, from New York City as he shares about his background growing up and what eventually uh, happened for him to land a leading role as Aladdin himself on Disney's Broadway show. As we enter May this weekend, uh, as we begin to celebrate Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, I invite you and welcome you to uh, share your story in whatever way, platform, and methodology that makes sense for you, that feels comfortable for you. And maybe in a couple uncomfortable instances, I encourage you uh, to share your story because somebody needs to hear it and somebody will resonate with you and that will help them uh, understand their own identities better and perhaps um, bring in a little bit of humanity and empathy into the world. And we all know that we can use a little bit more of that. Uh, May is going to be a very busy month for us here. We're going to be uh, releasing a lot of episodes. We got a few partnership uh, episodes that are uh, really exciting that we're starting to record. And so I welcome you uh, to share out these episodes with uh, your friends, with your colleagues. Um, thank you to those of you who listen uh, as a group within your organization's employee resource groups and at schools and on campuses across the country. Um, we are hitting the road uh, to do some speaking throughout the month of May. So exciting, excited to meet some of you. Uh, in real life next week. Uh, thank you again so much for joining us at Dear Asian Americans on Instagram. DearAsianAmericans.com is where you can connect with us. And so without further ado, here now is my conversation with Michael Malayakel. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. And we hope that you are doing well. By the time you're listening to this, I think, unless we've had a few more hiccups, uh, the world is a little bit more open. We're starting to hear things about masks being optional unless you're unvaccinated, but we know at this point that's not going to work. So stay safe, but also enjoy some of the things that we've dearly missed in the last couple years, one of which is going to see people perform live, whether that be music, sports, I think we've gotten a little bit of, but especially the arts. And so as a kid who went to high school in New York City and as somebody who appreciates that, it has been really, really cool to hear, uh, disappointing at times, but now really cool to hear stories of the plays opening up and obviously something that is vital to New York City and many other industries and economies around the world. And today we get to hear from and learn from and share this time with somebody who dons the stage of a major Broadway production of somebody who actually looks like us. Because I don't know how many shows I've went to, but I don't really recall looking up and seeing, oh my God, I my kids can aspire to be that. And so we are really excited to welcome Michael Malayakel to the Asian Americans. He plays Aladdin on the Broadway show Aladdin. And we'll learn about all of his stories and his journey and what this means for him and what this means for all of you and what the future holds. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Jerry, thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. What did you do during the pandemic, which I think is something that we're all curious about? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> so, you know... Uh, Unlike, say, uh, an accountant or uh, an ad 
ad man or something of the sort, my line of work doesn't really lend itself to remote work very, uh, very fluidly. Um, so it was a tough time for, for performers across all genres um, as we sort of had to take the back seat for the sake of public health. And, uh, you know, our, our livelihoods depend primarily on large groups of people gathering in the small enclosed spaces. So, um, so we were sort of the first to go, which was uh, really hard. Um, and so it was a, a long period of um, essentially unemployment as, uh, as we all tried to pivot and figure out um, ways to kind of um, muddle through until the, the world reopened. Uh, I was lucky enough to get to do a little bit of TV work uh, as that production world started to open up a little bit earlier than live theater, certainly. Um, I did some uh, remote concert work. There was a lot of these sort of streaming readings of, of new musicals and new projects uh, with varying degrees of success. Um, and ultimately, it was it was a long time of, of, uh, of self-reflection and trying to, um, you know, for, for so many of us, our careers are our senses of identity. And uh, when that was taken away, we were all sort of left I know a lot of my colleagues sort of left wondering, like, maybe, you know, maybe there's got to be a, a, a greater purpose, uh, something that motivates us outside of just what we do for a living and, and trying to define ourselves just within those small parameters. It's sort of, you know, in a way, if we were looking for a silver lining, it was nice to sort of um, focus more on my personal relationships and um, and trying to find uh, how I can be useful to the world outside of performing. Um and uh, you know, it was it was a long a long journey of discovering that, and ultimately, mm-hmm. when the world did come back for for us as performers, uh, you know, those first performances back were electric, and it was just a, an opportunity to really check in and feel grateful for every opportunity to to do what we do because we all realize how fragile it is, and um, and uh, and yeah, I think we're just really grateful to be back at it. Um, it was a, a long period of of uh of self-reflection and uh and just eagerly waiting to get back to it thank you for that and i think what you know we've all realized too was um, i I think when we think about the term essential or vital to an economy to a community uh, the arts isn't the priority right and i think truthfully in the grand scheme of things it's easy easy to see it that way and we but when broadway shut down i think many people including myself really understood the reach and the interconnectedness of the industry, because it's not just the ticket takers and the actors on stage. It's the people who feed them, the people who house them, and the people who dress them. And it's, you know, so I think it's given us so much more appreciation, if not appreciation yet, then at least some perspective to understand that this is vital. And for some, it's the thing that gives them joy. It's the thing that really puts more perspective in their lives so that we can continue to make positive change in the in the way that they do and we'll never know because we don't get to re certainly we don't want to relive the pandemic but you know you getting this opportunity to play this role could have only happened because the world played out exactly the way it did and you know i think the industry is such a vital part of of the new york um cultural landscape for sure but even financially i mean the like you said the the, for every ticket sold, there's a there's a meal served, there's a parking spot, there's sometimes a hotel room. There's, uh, I think I, I remember reading in an article that the Broadway uh, industry contributes more um, dollar per dollar than 
every single major sports league event in in New York, the New York City metropolitan area combined, which is extraordinary. And in in so many ways, New York wasn't New York until Broadway was reopened. Um, It's it's like sort of the heartbeat, the lifeblood of the city. So grateful that we're back. Yeah, because I think it's, you know, it's more than one sports team, right? So if the if the Knicks do well, they get 41 games at home, maybe more. If the Yankees do well, it's still 81 games. It's limited. Mm-hmm. But Broadway industry is really countless shows because there's main Broadway off mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. The industry is, you know, probably can never really account for an actual number of all the people that are involved. So yeah. what a cool thing. And I just want to say thank you, even though you're just doing your job. Um, <laughs> and I'd love to talk about it more, but I'll just mention that you're playing a role that can only be played by somebody that may look like you or should, mm-hmm. although Hollywood's been doing that for decades, having other people play us. <laughs> right. um, but it is mm. cool because I think, you know, just, you know, I have a five and almost three-year-old and I think it's, I'm 38. So I grew up at a time where we didn't have as much of this stuff. And so for for them to grow up in a world where it's just normal that a South Asian person plays Aladdin, duh. It's huge. It's huge. And it's I think about normal. what it would have meant to, to me growing up to see someone who looked like me uh, doing what I do now in terms of just like, you know, fueling a dream from an early age where I had to, and, and Shoba uh, Narayan, who plays Jasmine alongside of me is she's South Asian as well. She's Indian. And she, and I had these conversations just like, we had to just on blind faith, imagine ourselves in these positions because no one was doing it. No one was given the opportunity. And so um, it's a big ask for a young kid to be like, just dream it up out of nowhere, you know. Um, and so I, I, I take that responsibility uh, very seriously. Um, you know, seeing seeing young kids coming to our show, and for many of them, their first ever Broadway shows, and you know, um, you know, e- even if it doesn't inspire them to pursue this as a career, what it means just to see someone that looks like you in these spaces, just like in terms of welcoming you and making you feel like. These are your stories as well that, um, you know, that sense of inclusion is is huge. Yeah. I did go see Aladdin when it was on tour in L.A. in 2018, and I wish you were the main and we'll look forward to going to see it again. <laughs> you got to come to New York. In, in New York, I will. Um, <laughs> let's talk about that, you know, younger Michael. Tell us about your family. You know, how did they become Indian American? Where did you grow up? And uh, tell us about sort of the earlier experiences of your journey. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so most, both my parents are from Kerala, which is the southernmost state in India, um, and they immigrated here in the early 80s, um, originally to Texas. Uh, there was a big influx of, uh, I think originally it was like nurses. It was like a big nursing sort of shortage in, in the U.S., and so they were giving out visas to um, to nurses to sort of fill those shortages, and uh, an aunt of mine had moved here through that and sort of sponsored, um, my parents, uh, and then, um, my oldest brother, older brother, I have two brothers. Uh, my older brother was born in Texas and then my family relocated to New Jersey where my dad was working. Um, and so, yeah, we grew up in, uh, very suburban at that time, very white, uh, central New Jersey. Um, and, uh, I was probably one of maybe three Indian kids in my, uh, in my elementary school. Um, and, uh, it's an interesting experience growing up, uh, as, as a token, um, you know, a lot of my friends were, uh, uh, 
had a lot of black friends, I had a lot of Asian friends, um, very few Indian folks around me. And most of my family was still in Texas. So my connection to and my sense of, of Indian identity was, uh, was sort of neglected for a long time. Um, and it's, it's a little bit complicated because my family is also historically going back many generations Catholic. It's a small but very longstanding community of Christians in, in uh, South Asia, South India. Um, and so, you know, so much of, of the, uh, the little bit that, that America embraced about Indian culture was a lot of the like more traditional Hindu aspects, like the, you know, Diwali celebrations and Holi and those big elaborate week long weddings. Um, and none of which really applied to my specific upbringing. So it was, uh, interesting in that way, especially once I got to high school and, um, had a, you know, a handful more Indian folks, uh, to, um, to hang out with, uh, their experiences were so different from mine growing up. Um, and, uh, so that made, made me feel like almost a little bit more hesitant to embrace the Indian side of my culture, of my, of my ethnicity. I sort of, uh, got so used to just trying to survive as a, as a first generation kid that it, it made life was easier if I just sort of ignored all of that and tried to just kind of assimilate and uh, go with the flow, so to speak. Um, so I grew up in, in central Jersey. Uh, I started singing uh, through the church choir. That was sort of my first introduction to music and my mom put me in piano lessons. And, uh, and uh, you know, we, we all played uh, intramural sports and basketball and um, took tennis lessons and things like that. The, but the one thing that could really get me to focus and sit down as a rambunctious wild uh, middle schooler was, was music. It was, it was choir practices and it was, uh, sitting down at the piano and I could just like, you know, escape for a few hours. And, uh, and my mom really took to that and nurtured that. Um, I have so much, uh, uh, I owe her so much for nurturing that side of me. Um, and, you know, really laying the foundation of, of what that, uh, ended up being a career for me. So we, um, I attended a, kind of unique middle school, uh, primarily for, for singers called the American Boy Choir School in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, and that was sort of my foundational uh, exposure to music. Uh, and this was Western classical music. So a lot of, um, you know, church music and, and later on um, opera and uh, more classical music in that regard. Uh, I, once I got to high school and I was, you know, trying to immerse myself in everything, um, musical and artistic, uh, that's sort of where I first was introduced to theater. Um, all of my friends from the choirs were doing the plays and I was like, I don't really know what that means, but, um, if I want to hang out with these people, I guess I should audition for the plays. And so, uh, I sort of got into it, um, really just from the social aspect of it. Um, my parents, uh, had never seen a Broadway show. They hadn't taken me to see Broadway shows. Uh, I ended up going to see my first ever Broadway show, which was the Phantom of the Opera. Um, I think it was my junior year of high school. Um, and it was on a school field trip. Uh, and, uh, I had no idea that this world existed. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly at that time the cast was entirely white. Um, and so, I, I wasn't necessarily 
nurturing any dreams at that point of, of, of uh, being a part of that. But it was certainly something that captured my imagination. It was like, holy cow, like the, the scale of it, the grandeur, the, the costumes, the sets, the spectacle, um, thousands of people on their feet at the end of the show. It was just like, uh, it, it certainly ignited something in me. And, um, and I sort of fell in love with it from there on, um, did all the shows in high school. And um, by the time it was, um, you know, the time to start looking at colleges and figuring out what I wanted to do with my life, I, uh, you know, I, had, I remember a conversation with my parents where I was like, look, I, I really enjoy doing this. I'd been taking voice lessons for a while, winning some singing competitions and, and, uh, and I really love it, but I don't know that a, if there's a place for me in this world, there's, I don't have any role models to look up to and no one to emulate and be like, if I'll be able to make a living doing it. And, um, you know, uh, so grateful. My folks are the absolute best. They're just, uh, so open-minded in terms of, um, everything really, when it came to raising us, uh, I think, you know, as this sort of like third culture kid, it was you know, you hear so many stories about being pressured into doing certain things and into not doing certain things. And my parents ultimately were just like, whatever you choose to do, be the best at it, work your butt off, put in the time, put in the work and, uh, and, and the rest of it will sort itself out. Um, and so I think that, you know, at that time I was 18 years old and how any 18 year old decides to you know, make a decision that will affect the rest of their lives. It's sort of like a daunting <laughs> prospect. Like, what do you know when you're 18? Nothing. Um, and so I, I decided that it was probably best at that point just to keep my options open. And I ended up going to Georgetown University, studied um, sort of like liberal arts. Uh, and while I was there, I, uh, again, was in every choir and not the acapella groups doing all the plays. And, and at some point in my sophomore year, my friends just like sat me down. They're like, what are you doing here? Like you clearly like your heart is in a different place here. Like we love you. You're great. And I feel like, you know, your calling lies elsewhere. And like Georgetown's a fantastic school, but there's no, no music degree. There was a, you know, a, a decent student theater program, but nothing, um, really too extensive. And, and, and so at that point I, um, I made a, a really tricky decision to transfer out, um, which like who leaves Georgetown, like it's a great school. And I just, um, sort of, uh, knew in my heart that I, I would regret not having given it a shot. Um, and so I, I transferred to, uh, to the music conservatory at Johns Hopkins, the Peabody Institute of Music, um, and enrolled in a uh, vocal performance degree, uh, which uh, essentially is like, you know, Western classical music and opera, and uh, and it was amazing. I was I was finally like doing what I love to do, and and then it happened to also be contributing towards a degree, which you know was the goal <laughs> at that point, and uh, uh, yeah, so I, I ended up. Um, finishing up at Johns Hopkins and then moved to New York, which was sort of always a plan. I grew up not, not far outside of the city and, um, started, started auditioning. It was a lot of, um, a lot of choral work originally in the beginning. And then, uh, I sort of made my off Broadway debut in a, a little review at the triad theater uptown and got my agent through that. And, uh, Wait, I want to go back to the school stuff though, really sure, quick, because sure. we don't advocate, I certainly don't advocate making career or academic de decisions to please your parents or 
mom's church friends as a collective group of the most judgment people in our lives. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> but it's important, culturally speaking, community-wise speaking, to not to completely say, screw you, mom, and do, you know, especially because you are in the arts world, right? And so at least you checked a couple boxes off because Georgetown and Johns Hopkins are on the short list of approved schools that moms can brag about. <laughs> um, certainly if you're, you know, East Coast. How did they view, were they at least glad that you went to Georgetown initially and thought, Maybe he'll fall in love with biology or law or, or something at some point. Yeah. At least he wasn't going into like, hey, I'm just going to go try to find my way in the big city as an 18 year old. Right. How did those conversations I happen? I think ultimately they're, you know, like like any immigrant parents, I think they really valued, not to generalize, but but they really did place a huge importance on education. And I think like that for them was the ticket to um, to, uh, security and to success in the future. Um, you know, it was, it was from, from the get-go, they were like, whatever you do to get your college degree, at least you'll have that to fall back on. If you, if, you know, whatever kooky artistic endeavors you decide to pursue, don't, don't pan out. Um, and so, yeah, I mean that, that ultimately, like, as long as there was a degree involved, I think that, that they, they were going to be happy. It, it helped that yeah. these were like great schools and, you know, that, right. that certainly checks some boxes for them. But, but it, I think like even more, more so than some of the other um, Indian American friends that I had growing up, they were, they were really kind of open-minded about it. They were, they were like, listen, like, you, you only get one shot at this, um, you know, and, and why shouldn't you do what makes you happy? And I'm, I'm so grateful for that because, um, you know, I think, honestly, I probably put more pressure on myself to pursue these more like legitimate um, career goals, quote unquote, than, than my parents did in some ways. Um, and I think, you know, they recognized it, it, it was clear that like everything I was doing, all of my free time outside of class was dedicated to these artistic pursuits. And, and I was pretty good at it. And so I think like, you know, ultimately, they were like, really respectful of that. And, um, and I think, you know, as long as I got my degree and had had that piece of paper ready to go in case things didn't pan out, then, you know, uh, they, they were there to support me. And I'm so grateful. I think that we, we hear that a lot because I think it's it's important. And I when we talk about sort of doing both, you know, what is the bare minimum or sort of, you know, how far do you go down what we've been taught as a traditional academic route before you pivot away for, for every 18-year-old that says, screw it. You know, we see like the Dr. Ken Jungs who literally like worked as a doctor and then said, screw this. And I always be point out to him, I, I wish more doctors should quit so we have more examples <laughs> than just Ken to point out to the guy who said, screw it. But, you know, or even um, like lawyers who then become authors, right? Abigail Hing Wen, who wrote Love Boat Taipei, was and is a lawyer. And then she started writing, you know, young adult books. And, and so that I think is equally important. But I also think it's cool to hear of st stories of people who are just so, you know, uniquely focused in that, but also being in a traditional college atmosphere where it's not just about the academics, like we grow, we, you know, do stupid things as college kids and, you know, make friends and like live those experiences, uh, which I think is really important now as we, you know, sit at sort of the precipice of what people are describing as a new internet, a new economy, a new everything, where there's this loud chorus of screw college, not important, just go 
be a YouTube star or <laughs> go draw some cats or, you know, whatever it is, please don't send me notes about that. Um, but, you know, it is still good because it matters to people and it matters to particularly the people in our parents' spheres. Yeah. Right. So yeah, and look, I, I, I'm a realist when it comes to um, to this world and to certainly this career. Like I, I recognize and I I think I went into it. Um, not to give myself too much credit, but as a young kid, I, I went into it knowing like, look, this is really hard. Even if you are talented, uh, add on top of that, the fact that there is no one that looks like you that's really succeeding in any sort of tangible way doing it. So like, you know, you do need to have some sort of backup plan. You, you never know what, what could come out of it. And so I, when I, when I speak to young kids or people ask me for advice uh, on like what they should do, I always encourage them like to, mm -hmm. to keep your options open. I mean, a, you know, as a young kid, it's, it's, you, you grow so much between the ages of 18 and then say 24. How are you supposed to know at the age of 18 that like, that, yeah, this is it. This is what I want to do for, for the rest of my life. And there's nothing else. Um, I, I think that it's, it's great. And it's just like, it doesn't mean that like you're limiting yourself or, or, uh, you know, not fully committing or believing in your abilities. It's just about keeping your options open because it's, it's a brutally, uh, competitive field. So. So between the first off Broadway and now people helped you, we all, we don't ever get anywhere. And you just spoke about sort of the, and you're trying to be that now for younger folks, but the lack of mentors, a uh, lack of people who, pull you aside and, you know, take you out to dinner and tell you the stuff that you don't hear from anywhere. Who, who were those people for you? And what did you learn from those experiences, both good and educational that you want to do um, differently for kids looking at you and saying, holy crap, that could be me one day? I, I think the earliest uh, experience I had with someone telling me that this was something that I could actually feasibly make happen was my high school voice teacher, Douglas Millar. Um, he's an incredible man who just uh, uh, really like identified that sort of passion in me and sat me down and, and explained like, this is the reality of what the career could look like. Here are the things that you need to work on. I believe in you. I think this is something that you could, you could certainly do. Um, and I'm, I, I think like, you know, it took me <laughs> probably, uh, five, six years after that to finally convince myself that what he was saying was true, but uh, at least mm -hmm. to have someone sort of plant the seed at that point. Um, the other one was um, a casting director in New York, um, Carrie Gardner, who uh, was associated with um, this huge show called Spring Awakening, which is sort of like the rage when I was in high school and in early college. Um, and they, it was this super cool show it was like all these young kids singing rock music they had microphones and uh and it was like set in the 1880s i believe um but it was just like you know it won the tony award it was like the soundtrack was was really just taking off and uh and so they were casting replacements for that broadway show and for the tours and all this stuff that was were happening and i ended up going to an open call for that and made it through several rounds, um, they flew me up to New York and the whole shabam and, and, uh, and I, I didn't know shit about shit. Um, and I, I went in as like sort of a open eager eyed, uh, 
uh, idiot in some ways. I'd printed out my Facebook profile photo as a headshot because I, I just hadn't had any experience with it before. And uh, Carrie Gardner, uh, you know, pulled me aside and was like, listen, you're, you're, you're really good at this. There's, there's certainly something there, like, you know, uh, uh, not to steal a, uh, a, uh, Aladdin <laughs> reference, but the diamond in the rough here, like, you know, you, you, you have, you have what it takes. There's a lot of polishing that needs to happen and finessing, but, um, but if, if it's something you're serious about with some, with some effort and some work, there could, there could really be a career here. And to hear it from someone like her, who is in a position of, of, you know, authority, uh, a well-respected, uh, industry professional, that that's really what, um, what sealed the deal for me. When we look at people who've objectively reached some peak or, you know, peaks and valleys of success as we go, it's really interesting how they attribute to where they've gotten right and it's or how and and because of whose help and obviously luck plays a role privilege plays a role proximity plays a role but i think also opportunity plays a role this opportunity to play aladdin and we joked about it at the top of the show um how many yellow and brown face incidents have we had to learn about not in school because mm-hmm. they didn't teach us that but now, mm-hmm. thanks to our own, you know, ability to share these stories, it's interesting because I, I want to get your take on this because I exist in a very similar role where outside of the podcast, I get invited by the world's greatest, I say greatest, biggest companies and schools to speak, but it's on a very specific niche topic of the Asian American experience where I am happy to, it's a great opportunity, it pays well. And I am the best at it, but I wonder when will they call me to give their company-wide keynote in a stadium? Because your insight extends beyond just that limited Correct. Yes. But it's yeah. both, right? right? Because totally, only I can deliver your APEM speech, just like only you can play Aladdin the best way mm-hmm. because of even just cultural nuances that you can't read in a textbook. Mm-hmm. But your first big, big break, it was this. Mm-hmm. Like how... How did you process that growing up? And I guess before we talk about this Aladdin thing, but in the same context, what role did you grow up thinking that would help say, hey, this is when I know I've made it. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to take away anything from what you've achieved because I go through that all the time. And there's so many wonderful people that I work with and I'm grateful, but I always wonder if this was if this role was written for a white person, would you still have called me? And I, and I desperately have no choice but to believe yes, because mm-hmm. the other side is too sad to think about but the role is a south asian person fictional as it may be in the movie um so tell us sort of how you balance that yeah you know it's it's interesting in terms of like what it means for you know the south asian theater community is a small community in in new york certainly uh and and i basically know all of them and i'm grateful for um that shared experience and the support that we have come to give to each other over the years of, of trying to, you know, navigate this business. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that we talk about is, is what does it mean to actually have representation in the business, right? So there's there's that one level where it's, it's, uh, it's that the, those stories who are, which are directly inspired by South Asian, Middle Eastern, North African, uh, that diaspora, are authentically told by people from that perspective that 
you know, we you would hope would be the baseline, right? That's that's sort of uh, you would hope that that's at least a starting point. And then beyond that, um, it's it's for me, it was exciting. Uh, I got to understudy um, Raoul in uh, The Phantom of the Opera um, on the road and the national tour of that. And, you know, Phantom of the Opera is a traditionally very monochromatic uh, <laughs> makeup of those casts and until very recently, even here in New York. And and I think, you know, for me, that was a big, big moment. And I, I got a lot of, um, you know, support from from not just the South Asian community, but the Asian community, the larger Asian American community, um, you know, the black acting community, the Hispanic, Latino folks, just people that were like, listen, I've never seen someone with any kind of melanin play a role in that show before like how cool is it to see you up there um and so you know that that's the next level for me is like these these spaces that were not traditionally designed with anyone but a white person in mind um to be able to step into those roles and say like listen i i can authentically bring myself to this experience and make it all the more um interesting and um and ultimately welcome in through my presence, ideally welcome in a whole different audience, um, people that, that didn't otherwise feel like this world was, was meant for them, that they, they had a place here. And so that's sort of the next level for me. And I think ultimately what I'd love to see, and I'm, I'm grateful to be involved in a couple of projects that are sort of coming through the pipeline is, is shows that, um, either are written specifically by, South Asian um, or an Asian writers that um, can really authentically bring their lived experiences to the page and then to the stage. Uh, that is so exciting because that that just gives it the next level of 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 um, credibility. And uh, I'm excited about those those experiences and to be able to hopefully one day create a role um, on Broadway uh, that was intended to be, um, you know filled by by someone that looks like me i think that's that's sort of like that that's like my my northern star here that's what i'm what i'm aiming for it's it's wonderful to know that we are at a place where that's not only possible but probable mm -hmm. a lot of people and it, it's tough because i think when we see the typecast and we see the stereotypes that have plagued all of our communities somebody who looks like us agreed to play that role to pay rent and so we, we also have to appreciate the sacrifices on which we have the audacity to say, hey, I would love to see a Desi Americans show headlining Broadway. And when they say the market isn't big enough, points to, but there's a billion people here, like in India, that would come to yes. show, you know? So Yes. And, you know, the, the Indian American community, I think, is one of the fastest growing ethnic populations in the U.S. And there's a lot of expendable income there that is just waiting to be tapped. And, you know, we're seeing it even here at the New Amsterdam where Aladdin plays that I, you know, I, I'm seeing aunties and saris <laughs> and like, you know, folks in hijabs. And it's just like it's so beautiful to see these faces and these bodies walking into a Broadway theater that I have never seen before. Certainly not with this kind of frequency. And and I think, you know, people love to point to the the like pipeline problem that like, oh, we'd love to to encourage more talent like this. But there there there's a dearth of the talent and, yeah. and we're trying to fill that. And I think you you have to start somewhere, right? And I think um, 
I am, you know, I know you end with a, a certain segment that this is, <laughs> this is sort of like something I feel very passionately about, as you can probably tell. But, um, but I think uh, I, I'm, I'm done with that excuse. Oh. <laughs> sure, no, it's, it's absolutely true because let's, let's take that for a second, right? So Broadway as an industry might say, hey, why should we create a Indian American show or a South Asian show with a South Asian cast? They don't come to Broadway without asking the question, have we ever put a product in front of them that they would throw money at? Of course mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. And so while mm -hmm. we have been asked to invest and support financially shows that don't depict us, they're using that same premise to deny us the opportunity for us to shine. Right. And so right. what is it, you know, going to take all, all the, it's my people, but like all the Korean shows that are blown up on Netflix to be like, Hey, that's profitable. Because we have to show them, whether it is Asian American yeah. or straight Asian, that our content is not only relatable, but wildly profitable. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so right. it's always that sort of, you know, and that's why I think as, as challenging as it is for our community, especially uh, the last three years, and especially this week, as, as we sit here on, in the shadows of more terrible, terrible news, this, if, if there can be a silver lining and I don't mean to offend, but if some good comes out of this is that we are being heard. And I'm not talking about people outside of the community listening to us. I am talking about the people in our community who now feel empowered to speak up because they've always had access to rooms where they've been silent. They've always been quiet for the fear of being the Asian guy or the Asian woman in a boardroom, in a classroom, in rooms where decisions and money is exchanged to finally say, we, this makes cultural sense, but it also makes financial sense. And I hate to mm -hmm. say that. No, look, look, it's, 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 especially in, in the business, business I work in, Broadway is an incredibly expensive endeavor. Any way you look at it, whatever, even, even, you know, surefire bets, uh, like intellectual property, like movies that are enormous hits. Like if you put them on Broadway, there's no guarantee right. that they'll be successful. And so I understand that that there is a big risk uh, being taken in some of the, in, you know, anytime you open a Broadway <laughs> show, honestly. But but I think beyond that, I think I have to give Disney credit for for taking the steps yeah. to 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 advance um what we're talking about here right i think it's it's really really special to to finally see um the action behind the words yeah. and and i i'm hopeful that things will continue along this path i think you know we're talking about silver linings with the pandemic and the sort of racial awakening that um that america is going through right now uh we're we're starting to see that trickle down into 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 the media in terms of like what what stories are worth being told, who deserves to tell those stories, who deserves to write those stories, and what deserves to have money put behind it to actually be produced at a high level with great exposure. And I think I'm I'm excited and hopeful for what that yeah. could mean um, moving forward. And now, again, we have generations that have been in the industry are now in those positions to voice, and so. You know, I, I think we talk about the pipeline problem. It also exists on the business side of things, right? And so maybe all the things that we now consider offensive or cringy were literally made when things were written about us or featuring us where we didn't have a voice. And so hopefully mm -hmm. now we are, we are, we are where we are. There's no point in blaming. 
But now we want to empower more people to jump into the business to say, if this is a problem, let's fix it. And let's join in the solution and to say, hey, you know, either we're going to ask or we're going to demand that incumbents feature us or we'll make our own. And we see yeah. plenty of that, right? And so, yeah. and the internet is the internet. And so people in your shoes, maybe younger versions of you are now finding their voice in non-traditional ways where they can make a healthy living and express their craft and to inspire the next generation. But I think it's it's important to do both, right? And so, you know, I went down the corporate path, I left and now I do, you know, work that elevates the community outside the box. I still need friends inside to one, invite me and two, to make the policy changes inside the systems. Um, and even in the entertainment sense, it is still important to have Asian folks who look like us and to understand us culturally headlining Broadway shows, being on movie posters, being on billboards, because those still, whether we like it or not, are still symbols of validation that we deserve to be seen. And so mm -hmm. um, this is, I, I am so excited to have this conversation. Um, it is, I don't know, I, I can't wait to go to New York to to watch you. So it, it's, it opened in September. And so you've been mm -hmm. busy the last uh, mm -hmm. six months or so. <laughs> Um, it, it took us some time to schedule this interview and, you know, thanks to all the friends behind the scenes who, who made it possible. Tell me about when you found out that you got the role and how did your parents respond? Oh, man, that gives me goosebumps to think about. Um, so, you know, we, we were coming out of this long period of unemployment for for uh, performing artists. Uh, and uh, this was my first big audition coming out of that period for theater, at least. And um, and when it came across my desk, I uh, I sort of chuckled to myself because <laughs> I mean it's Aladdin, right? It was it was it was he was the prince that all of us aspired to be when we were little. It was like I had the lunchbox, I had the tidy whities <laughs> I had the bed sheets, I had all of it, right? It was. It was it. We, my brothers and I, wore that VHS out as a kid, and and uh, and to finally have this opportunity to even just audition for the part was was extraordinary. And I'd been, um, you know, I prepared my butt off, and and through a series of I think it was eight total auditions and callbacks, uh, when I finally got the call, it was it was. Um, it was unreal. I sort of like collapsed on the floor in a pile of tears and my dog and my wife were like, what is hap? Are we okay? Are we going to be okay? What it was. And then to finally call my mom and be like, listen, this is, this is finally happening. Like I, I'm going to debut on Broadway as a leading role in, you know, one of Disney's most successful Broadway shows ever. It was unreal, just completely crazy. And, and on top of that, there's this through line through the musical, which is not, it was, a uh, it was in the concept for the animated film, but didn't ultimately mm -hmm. make it in. Um, Aladdin sings this song called Proud of Your Boy to his, um, you know, he's an orphan. He sings to his his mother who has passed. And that song is sort of the, the through line that follows his trajectory through the stage play. And um, and so that's the main audition song as well. And And so, you know, he sings about wanting to make his mom proud and promising her that he's going to pull himself out of, of his, uh, street rat life and, and make something of himself. And I mean, holy cow, if that doesn't like stir some shit up in yeah. you as a first generation kid whose parents sacrificed a lot to come here and, and, uh, 
you know, create a better life for their kids. It, it, it was, uh, it was everything. She was, my parents were both there on opening night and I was a wreck. <laughs> uh, it was, it was, um, it was a really emotional experience, uh, for so many reasons for finally being able to get back to work and do what it is I had trained so hard my, my life to, to do. And then, and then to accomplish this, uh, this goal of mine that I'd had to, to, be on Broadway, let alone taking the last bow on a big Broadway stage. And then to have my parents there, um, it was, all of it was, um, man, it makes me, uh, uh, very emotional just to think about it. But, um, it was, it was an incredible moment. I'll never forget. Gotten me emotional, man. Um, how do you, I I know this is your profession and, and you are a professional, but how do you keep it together? Like on opening night when, I mean, you can, you know, you've rehearsed enough to do it in your sleep, but just the emotions and knowing that not only are your parents there, but I can only imagine how many Indian Americans paid through the roof on StubHub just to be there because it's that important. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I think, um, I think what, what sort of got me to, to, to keep it together, honestly, was the sheer fear of just having to finally do it on opening <laughs> night. You know, rehearsals are one thing, but then once you've got a, a full paying crowd of some 1,700, some folks in the, in the crowd there, you've, you have, a, you have a job to do. You've got, you got to hit your marks and, and sing all the right notes and, and get through the show. And, you know, I think, um, as actors, like, you know, the goal is to embody the the characters that we're playing, right? So I think if you can remove yourself a little bit from, oh, this is, uh, you know, Michael on a stage singing about making his mom proud and his mom is about 20 feet away, you know, it's like, that's, that's one thing. But if uh, I, when I found myself going there, it was, it was about stepping back and being like, okay, I, I need to be Aladdin right now to get through this performance. And, uh, and I think, you know, on top of that, I felt an enormous responsibility because, because there are so few people that look like me and Shoba um, uh, succeeding at, at high levels in this industry, there's you know Broadway is a is a um, it's a really difficult uh, career in general that's very competitive and very challenging for sure. But we have that added responsibility of being the first in so many experiences and 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 influencing. Um, directors and casting directors and producers influencing their opinions of what it means to hire people that look like us. So we're setting precedents for the people that might follow. And so the responsibility to succeed and to make all these folks, um, you know, the hundreds of people that it takes to put these shows together, to make them all see like, oh, this was the right move. This was the right decision. This person is delivering on what we had hoped he would be able to do. You know that added responsibility is uh, it can be really overwhelming sometimes, and I think um, I, I have that in the back of my head every time I walk out on stage. It's um, it's a responsibility that I think a lot of my white colleagues don't understand and never could because they've never had to represent their entire race uh, in 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 these situations, and um, so it's. Um, you know, th- those are the things that that keep me motivated and grounded because I I refuse to give everyone anyone an excuse to think, um, you know, maybe we shouldn't have hired an Indian person to play this role. Like, th- there's a reason why. You know, that's that's not going to happen on my watch. I don't think it will ever happen, and for good reason. You grew up 
I think we all did. And I think for me, it was a little bit different being East Asian. But I know when I talk to a lot of my South Asian friends, like, you know, whether it was the best one or not, it didn't matter. Like this was us and people knew that diaspora because of the movie. And for what it's worth, you sort of envision it. And so your co-star has, has a really nice quote. It says, "Every it is every brown girl's dream to be singing that song on an actual flying carpet. The fact that I get to do it in Broadway in full costume, it's it's emotional. And now, not to put all the burden on you, but I will. <laughs> you're now that guy that young and old brown boys look up to to say, hey, and it's, you know, it's actually more real because people are actually coming to see you in person to do it and different, obviously, you know, impacts of seeing it on screen or seeing it in person. How does that make you feel in terms of the opportunity that you have to normalize this and influence so that they don't, this is just normal? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the goal, right? It's, it's, it's for it to not be something remarkable, right? To, 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 to have it not be a headline like, oh, the first two folks leading a Disney show, you know, South Asian uh, actors leading a, a Disney show. I, I just, I can't wait for that time when it's um, just sort of a given that like, sure, why, why shouldn't the, the stories that we tell on stage reflect the way that the world looks today? I mean, you walk out of the theater into Times Square and it's every possible shade and orientation and ability level you could imagine here in, in New York. And, and it's, it's for so long, when you walked into a Broadway show, all of a sudden, all of that was gone. And it was one shade with maybe a few little tokens interspersed there. And I think, you know, ultimately, the goal is for it to just be very normal that that these these experiences happen. I think also, like, you know, I, I keep saying about how important it is to, to make, um, you know, Asian folks feel like welcome in in these traditionally white spaces um beyond that like you know sure it would be so it would have been so amazing as a young michael to 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 go to a broadway show and see someone doing this and then figure out like oh i i can also do this um and then and then next, the next level i think is just about humanity it's about seeing folks succeeding in these spaces and seeing, you know, if, if say you are someone that lives in rural America and uh, has never interacted with a brown person before, um, you know, you you cling on to whatever little stereotypes you see in the media, right? And I think until those stories that are being told about us and through our bodies tell a varied, diverse, fully lived experience you know, we're going to continue to see these hate crimes happen and, you know, people judging people for whatever limited perspectives they might have. So I think ultimately, like, an, I, I, I hope that we're up there being villains, that we're up there being the heroes, the, le the leading man who gets the girl at the end of the show, the, you know, the sidekicks, all of it, so that the whole experience is shown. And um, yeah, we get out of those little boxes. I, I heard, I forget who said it. They're like, why can't we make crappy movies too? You know, why, why is this burden that like, I mean, it's because we get so few at bats and we understand that's, it's a that's problem, it. but that's you know, it. yeah. why, why can't we make, you know, mall cop and, and all the other, you know, weird things you're like, who, who made this, <laughs> um, my, my dream. And it would make me cry in a different way is for my kids to ask me what the big deal is when we go to celebrate Asian American milestones, that would be yes. such a, you know. Because, yes. you know, it's 
Nathan and Chloe won gold medals and like why they don't get it yet to yeah. them it's yeah. and I'm like making them sit down and be like watch this right this is important yes um, yes but yes one day because this thing is going to not only grow but also exponentially grow right compound for mm -hmm. them to just be like dad what's the big deal it's normal for Korean kids to win gold medals yes. I'm gonna do it and like that's the goal I, it's it's so important to celebrate oh, the first goosebumps, but mm. you know, in in doing like the EI work or whatever, like the goal is for us to not have a job. And how mm -hmm. cool would that be if everybody was human and we wouldn't have to do any of this work? And absolutely, where it's not a big deal that two Asian guys are talking about identity. I mean, talk to her like one generation ago, dudes didn't do this, right? And so no. we're 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 making mm. such good progress and. It is so cool. And all the superlatives in the world can't express how cool I think it is that you are doing what you are doing, representing a brand, a company, and a franchise that is a household name in, in so much of our experiences that it makes no sense but to have somebody who looks like you, but somebody who also just honestly and, and deeply understands the cultural nuance. There's a, a quote, there's a video uh, that's about God, I forget who it was. It was a uh, a black movie director, and it's like, you know, why is it important? Is it why do you need to direct this movie? And and the answer was, it's not color, it's culture, and it's because mm -hmm. we understand the nuances of what this means for us. And so I know I am not the first, won't be the last, to put the entire burden of the subcontinent on your shoulders. <laughs> but I, I hope this thing lasts forever. I know that you know broadway shows can go on for years and years and years and, and this one um you know is the continuation of that i i hope that this leads to so many things and and all the wonderful amazing things that make you whole um not only as a professional but just as the son of immigrants and to really show all of us uh, both in and out of our community that this is possible and it's extra special because we get to do it our way and I, I think it's so cool, man. It is super exciting. I can't wait to go see it in person. And uh, we'll we'll finish the show in the same way that we always do. And I know you've inspired us so much and have shared uh, so many nuggets. But in the typical way that we finish our show, would love for you to help us close out this episode by sharing any thoughts of uh, perspective, inspiration, wisdom, or anything at all that's been on your mind uh, to our audience. And close out the letter. Dear Asian Americans, you deserve to take up space. Your perspectives and your experiences make the stories that you tell so much more meaningful than you could ever know. Um, I think certainly it's important to, to work hard, to do your training and practice your butt off um, so that no one has an excuse not to give you the opportunities that you deserve. Um, because we need you and we need your bodies to be telling these stories so that one day it's not remarkable. You deserve to take up space. Remarkable is a goal, but there's more beyond that. Yes. We want to normalize excellence. And as much as it is cool, I hope there's 10 Michaels and that there are leading stars on Broadway for roles not written for us. Yes. My final thought is this. Often we get told, you're not big enough of an audience. 
Asians, generally speaking, we're after all six to seven percent of the country. Well, we are four billion out of seven billion people on this planet. And so there are far more people who will relate to our experience or just by the way we look than we are taught to believe. And so if you're out there and you're listening to this because you are a fan of Michael's or you are a fan of Broadway or you just listen to the show, if you haven't heard it before, let us be the first to tell you that you can dream big and you can make it happen. And there are four billion people rooting for you. And so, Michael, thank you. I know it's a very busy time for you and you're headed straight into uh, another show and making us all proud. I promise to visit New York this year and see you in person. And to everybody behind the scenes who made this possible, thank you so much. Most of all, continue to stay healthy and good luck. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you so much for joining for this amazing conversation. Um, you know, I think it is really awesome that we get to share our stories. Um, and for Michael, it is uh, doing what he loves best and doing what he is so good at on stage, um, letting kids believe that they too can be like that one day and to take up space on a stage that is uh, looked up to by so many people. You can connect with him. Uh, I will put the links where you can connect with him um, on the in the show notes. Uh, you can connect with me at jerrywan.com or dearagedamericans.com. And I encourage you to follow us on Instagram at the Asian Americans or at Jerry J one. And I look forward to connecting with you. As I said at the top of the show, I encourage everybody to share their story a little bit in May, a little bit more than you have uh, to help not only ourselves, but our friends and our allies understand the variety and the diverse richness of what makes our community so wonderful. Uh, whether it is on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, or just even in your own daily lives as you begin to engage with friends, colleagues, uh, classmates about what it means to be Asian American, because there's really no one way for us to experience or even tell the Asian American story. We are so diverse, we are so rich in our unique stories, and yet so resonant, and, and yet so um, together in our own voice. And so uh, thank you again so much for tuning into our show. We have some amazing episodes coming up uh, with some really fabulous guests. Um, so thank you to everybody who has tuned in so far and for everybody who will share our Asian American stories in May and beyond. This has been your host, Jerry Wan of Dear Asian Americans, and I wish you health, happiness, and safety, and a happy Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Thank you.